Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me, please, to the book of James. James chapter 3, as we continue our series, walking through the book of James, now up to our seventh message. James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13 and reading down through verse 18. I want to preach to you this morning on the subject of walking in wisdom. Walking in wisdom. And while you're finding your place in James 3, if you would also go ahead and find Romans chapter 1, that will help you later on in the context of the message. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, walking in wisdom. Walking in wisdom. James begins by asking a question. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Father, we thank you for your claim upon our lives to come out from among the world, to live holy lives, to be different. And I pray that this is one aspect when we, where we would certainly do that, that we would not be like the world in its wisdom, but that we would seek after your counsel and your direction. Father, you've called us to be salt and light in this culture and to be a witness for the Lord Jesus. The way we think, the way we believe, and in turn the way that impacts our actions has a great deal to say about the validity of our Christianity. God, help us to walk in wisdom, in your wisdom. I pray for that person this morning who may be at a crossroads in their lives today. Perhaps there's a situation that they've been praying about and seeking a word from you. God, I pray that you would give them that word, give them that direction. We thank you for this time that we can open the Bible and read it. I think of how the scripture says, all flesh is as grass and it withers. But the word of our God stands forever. And so this morning we open your inerrant, infallible word. We pray that through your Holy Spirit you would speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Writer Os Guinness tells about a private moment in history. In 1909, at the height of one of the busiest periods of immigration in American history, two immigrants from Europe stood at the rail of their ship as it passed by the Statue of Liberty 
in New York's harbor. One said to the other, won't they get a surprise when they hear what we have to say? The speaker was Sigmund Freud. His companion was Carl Gustav Jung. Fathers of modern psychoanalysis as we know it today. Within six years of their arrival, their ideas had set up a whole new paradigm in human thought of which no one at that time could have even begun to have envisioned the consequences of what they proposed. More than 500 brand new therapies now jostle to compete for millions and millions of clients. The counseling couch has become as American as the baseball diamond or the golden arches. In the process, the United States has become the world capital of therapeutic endeavor. Although America has only 6% of the world's population, it boasts of over a third of the world's psychiatrists and over half of the world's clinical psychologists. Now folks, while this message this morning is certainly not a tirade against modern psychology, we're invited in this section of the book of James to look at the world's version of wisdom. And as we think about the world's version of wisdom, we need to be reminded of what Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that through man's wisdom, man has not come into a saving knowledge of God. Now for certain, God wants us walking in His wisdom. He invites us to do so. Now bear with me a moment, there are a number of invitations in the Word of God I want us to think of and then I want us to think of this invitation to walk in wisdom. Probably one of the greatest invitations in the Word of God would have to be what God says in Isaiah 55. In Isaiah 55 God says, come all who are thirsty, come to the waters and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me, hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you my faithful love promised to David. And then, of course, the invitation of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 11, beginning there in verse 28. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then perhaps one of the greatest invitations of all in Romans chapter 10 where Paul says in verse 13 that all those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now folks, isn't that a great invitation? All who call upon the name of the Lord and, and yield their lives to His control. He's the Lord of your life. Paul says, you shall be saved. There's not a maybe or an if about it. It is a certainty. Great invitations in the Bible. 
But certainly another one of the great invitations in the Bible is that we are called upon by God to walk in wisdom. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, God says we are to make absolutely certain in our lives that we lay a hold of His wisdom. He wants His children walking in wisdom. James began his book in chapter 1 reminding us that we all go through trials and tribulations in life. And sometimes as we go through trials and tribulations in life, as he pointed out there in chapter 1, we find that we have a deficit in God's wisdom. We don't see clearly how to make it through that trial. And so in James chapter 1 verse 5, God says, If you find yourself lacking wisdom, ask of God who gives to all men liberally and without finding fault. And he'll give it. God offers His wisdom to His children. I think of Solomon in the Old Testament when he became the ruler after his father David. God gave Solomon a blank check and said, Solomon, ask for whatever it is that you want. And Solomon said, God, I need wisdom to lead this people. And the Bible says God was very pleased with that request and He granted Solomon wisdom. But only a few years went by and Solomon ceased walking in the wisdom from God and he began walking in the wisdom of the world and he made a mess out of his life and he wasted years and years of his life and it was many years before he came back around. All you have to do is read about Solomon's search in the book of Ecclesiastes where he tried the world's wisdom and and he made this assessment of the world's wisdom. He said, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. But by the end of his life, he came back around to seeking God's wisdom. God makes his wisdom available. But what is wisdom? How would you define it? How would you look at wisdom? Would you define wisdom as simply being the number of degrees that are listed after your name? Would it be the size of your bank account? Would it be the number of people that you manage? Would it be your position at work? How do you define wisdom? You see, the world defines it that way. The world defines wisdom by what we possess, by what we have. The amount of degrees, the amount of uh, people that we manage. But God defines it differently. In fact, James begins this passage by asking, Who is wise among you? And we would all like to raise our hand and say, James, count me into that group. But then he goes on to say, Okay, if you have wisdom, if you have knowledge, then it needs to be seen in how you conduct your life. Is the fruit of the Spirit a part of your conduct? You see, that's God's wisdom. We see here in this passage the world's wisdom and we see God's wisdom. And as believers, James is calling upon us to uh, to follow God's wisdom. Let's look at it in the text today. First of all, I want to point out to you the wisdom that is from below. The wisdom that is from below, read with me again in verses 14 to 16. James says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. 
For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Let's start there by looking at the operation of the wisdom from below. What does it look like when it's carried out in life? There in verse 14 he says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not, be, uh, do not boast and be false to the truth. The wisdom of the world exalts man and tries to glorify man. And now those who pursue this type of wisdom are usually trying to do nothing more than simply promote themselves. And so James says the outworking, the operation of this wisdom that is from below is characterized first of all by bitter jealousy or envy. That's where you tend to try to push yourself up by pushing others down. Now it's been said that envy occurs when we have empty hands and we long for what somebody else has. But today it's even worse. We have full hands and yet we still want more. We're jealous because others around us have things that we don't have. We covet their homes. We covet their careers. We covet their position in life. We envy them. We're jealous of them. Now the biblical response is that we are to be content with what God has given to us. But the envious person never is. He or she always wants more and resents others if they're out in front. Now folks, that's one of the outworkings, that's one of the operations of this wisdom from below. It says you deserve more, you ought to resent others who have more. You need to be jealous of them, you need to be envious of them. And then a second outworking of this uh, wisdom from below is selfish ambition. This phrase came to be used of politicians who would stop at nothing to get the vote. Now that sounds pretty contemporary, doesn't it? They had to win. They had to be first. Even if they had to use questionable means in order to win, in order to get elected, in order to be first. They were selfishly ambitious. Instead of loving your neighbor as yourself, you love only yourself. You look out only for yourself. The world says just look after old number one. And that phrase selfish ambition also has in it the idea of manipulation. You're willing to manipulate others in order to get what you desire out of life. James says that is a picture of the outworking of the world's version of wisdom. And James says if that description fits you, don't be arrogant, don't be proud of it, don't boast over your sin, don't excuse it as only being human and so be false against the truth. Instead, as Paul said in Philippians chapter 2 verse 3, God's answer to selfish ambition is that we would do nothing through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let others, let others be esteemed as being better than ourselves. 
Instead of biting and clawing and scratching our way to the top and being jealous and envious of everybody and trying to go after what everybody has and get everybody to look after my needs, Paul says in Philippians 2 that we need to adopt the attitude of Christ who is a servant. And we need to be willing to look at others and ask, what do others need? And we need to meet their needs instead of simply meeting our needs. Well, after looking at the operation of the wisdom from below, he moves on to talk about its origin. Look in verse 15. Where does this wisdom from below come from? Well, look at verse 15. He says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. He uses three words here to describe the origin of the wisdom that is from below. First of all, he says it is earthly. In contrast to the wisdom that is from above, this wisdom comes from fallen man. It's horizontal in its scope. It doesn't take its cue from God, but from the world system. It asks, what is everybody else doing? Folks, that's one of the most dangerous questions we could ever ask. What's everybody else doing? I think of what uh, Psalm 1 says. It says, Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, who standeth not in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is what? In the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. We're not simply to walk around through life and ask the question, what, all, uh, what is everybody else on earth doing? What is the earthly man, the man driven by just horizontal considerations? What is he doing with his life and I want to follow him? James says here, no, that is a very poor pattern to follow with your life. Paul says in Romans 12 too that we are not to be conformed to this world. I like how Phillips paraphrases that verse. He says we are not to be squeezed into the world's mold. There's some examples in the Word of God where people allowed themselves to be squeezed into the world's mold. Where they followed earthly wisdom. I think first of all about Abraham and Sarah. God promised to Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son. The son of promise, Isaac. But they got tired of waiting on God, didn't they? And so what did they decide to do? They decided to take matters into their own hands. And Sarah gave her handmaid, Hagar, uh, to Abraham. And through Hagar, Abraham had a son, Ishmael. And today we see the ongoing conflict as a result of that between the Arabs and the Jews, right? That's where, uh, that's where earthly wisdom has gotten us today. Between the Arabs and the Jews. Because Abraham and Sarah decided to make a very earthly, a very man-centered decision and follow their wisdom instead of waiting on God. And then I think of Lot. Abraham and Lot, their herds and their flocks were, were getting large and the land could not support both of them. And so Abraham said to Lot, listen, 
Our people don't need to be fighting and arguing amongst one another. We're brothers and we're friends. And so you look out over all the land and decide which direction you want to go in. And I'll go in the opposite direction. And the Bible says that, uh, that Lot looked eastward. And as he looked eastward, he looked towards Sodom. And as he looked towards Sodom, he saw all that fertile value uh, valley. And he said, I want to go that direction. There's value in, in going that direction. And we know what it costs a lot. He was exposed to all the immorality in that area. And finally God said, I'm going to destroy that whole area. Get out, of the, get out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Take all your family. And, and he had to leave. He lost everything. And in the process, he even lost his wife. That's where earthly wisdom got him. Well, James says another origin of this wisdom from below, not only is it earthly, but it's unspiritual or it's uh, sensual. It means it's of the flesh. This wisdom looks to the flesh of man. It doesn't look up to God. Unspiritual means that we try to do everything our way without asking God what His way may be. Are you facing any decision like that in your life this morning? Maybe you're at a fork in the road, a crossroads. About some decision. And to date, perhaps you've not even brought God into the equation. You're just sitting down with your family or sitting down with co-workers and you're talking about what you think you need to do and you're not even bringing God's wisdom into the equation. James says that's unspiritual, that's sensual. We seek after our own answers, our own solutions and we don't even bring God into the equation. But it gets even worse than that. It's not just earthly and sensual, but James goes on to say this wisdom from below is what? It's demonic. Satan's behind the wisdom of the world. Ephesians 6 says we're engaged in a spiritual battle. We don't simply battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and high places. There's a spiritual warfare going on around us that we see evidence of in the world. The Bible says Satan is at work. Demonic powers are at work. And if we follow the wisdom of the world, we're actually following demonic wisdom. Demonically inspired wisdom. Think, think of the consequences of that. Think of the gravity of what James is saying here. Much of what we see going on in the world around us, James is saying here, is actually demon inspired. Demons are behind it. And that's what we see in much of what's going on in the world today. When, when we click on certain shows and, and, and movies and certain books and certain uh, publications, what we're seeing propagated there in the wisdom of the world is actually Satan trying to get a foothold into society. You believe that? That's exactly what the Word of God tells us is going on. We see right after Genesis 3, there in Genesis 3, Satan got into the garden and tried to get Adam and Eve to disobey God, and they did. And the next thing you see is Genesis 4, all the violence and the hatred and the killing that started immediately in Genesis 4 after the original couple listened to the voice of the evil one. And James says that pattern still continues today. 
People buy into the wisdom from below that's earthly, man-centered, fleshly, sensual. Doesn't bring God into the equation. And Satan and his demonic powers are actually in behind all that. That's the origin of it. What does he say the outcome of it is? Look at verse 16. He says, for where there is jealousy and selfish ambition that exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. There'll be disorder, confusion. I think of the Tower of Babel. All the confusion there. I think of all the confusion in the world today. Look at all the disorder in the world today. Look at all the backbiting and the jealousy and the envy. And what's that a sign of? It's a sign that men are not following God. And ladies and gentlemen, the Bible points out that this wisdom from below can even creep into the church. Paul writing to the Corinthians said to them, I could not even write to you or speak to you as those who were spiritual. But those who are worldly and of the flesh and carnal. And Paul said, how do I know this? He said, because all I have to do is look at all the jealousy and envy and backbiting and gossip and fighting among you. And I know that I can't speak to you as those who are spiritual. So this brand of wisdom can even creep into the church. Disorder, confusion. Then James moves on, gives gives another phrase to describe its outcome. He says every vile practice is also the result. That phrase can also mean that, that such a way of living leads to worthless things. The world in its wisdom has gone after not only vile things but worthless things. We're putting all of our money and time and energy into so much in the world that's just worthless. Think of how we spend so much of our time and energies and money. On things that won't last. On things that if we were honest how God viewed them, God would probably say those things are just empty. They're they're worthless. And every vile practice, as you read these verses right here, it's like like James is given a snapshot of, of modern day society. It's like he's reading our email and he's gone from preaching to meddling, right? But that's where the wisdom of the world leads us. It leads to division and fighting and ungodliness. May I say this morning that that's exactly what happens when we reject God's wisdom from above. And where do we find God's wisdom? We find it in His Word. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 1 just a moment. I want you to see this pattern that comes up over and over again in the Word of God. Folks, as I read these verses in the book of Romans, I I want you to look at the natural, the, the digression that we see here in this passage. Verse 18, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now underscore that, that's where it starts. What do men start doing? They start suppressing the truth of God, the wisdom of God that is from above. He goes on in verse 19 to say, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You see what Paul's saying there? He's saying exactly what James is saying about earthly wisdom in James chapter 3. He's saying there's a wisdom from above that God makes available, but when we reject God's wisdom from above and we embrace the wisdom from below, what happens? This downward spiral begins in society. And every evil practice results as a, uh, as a consequence of rejecting God's truth. And that's exactly what we see around us in society today, right? Just look at the headlines. Look at what's going on in society. We see going on in society today exactly what Romans 1 talks about will happen when we operate on the basis simply of this wisdom from below. We said to God a long time ago, we don't want you in our schools anymore. We don't want you in our government. We don't want you in our courts. We don't want you in the marketplace anymore, God. Get out. And look at the consequences that we're reaping. It's like somebody said recently. How's that working out for you? How's it working out for you? That we as a society have rejected God and now we're encountering the very things that we're encountering out in society to where we're scared to even go to bed at night unless all our doors and windows are locked. It's because long time ago as a society we bought into this wisdom from below. But there's a better way. James secondly directs our attention to the wisdom that is from above. Look with me in verses 17 and 18. James says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those 
who make peace. Folks, it's like with verse 17, we enter into a whole different atmosphere, don't we? From what we've just read about. There's a wisdom from above. What's its origin? Look at verse 17. In verse 17, he says, but, but the wisdom from above is first pure. It is from God. It is from above. God gives wisdom. Remember again, James 1.5, that God gives his wisdom liberally to all who ask. James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is coming down from above. And, and what James is saying here, this wisdom from above, he uses in the Greek text, he uses a present participle which means God keeps on sending down his wisdom from above to those who will seek it it's not like he gives a one time allotment to you in your life and says uh oh that's it that's all you get gave it to you one time not going to give you anymore he says no this wisdom from above just keeps rolling down from the throne of God To those who want it. Amen. Well what's the operation of this wisdom? He says it is first pure. Wisdom from above is pure. It's honest. It's pure. It's holy. It's first in the list because God is holy. God is pure. There are no hidden motives in God's wisdom. It's clean. It's unspotted from the world. It's refreshing. And everything else, every other attribute flows out of this attribute. Instead of all the vileness and the filthiness we see in the world, we see God's purity, His holiness, His wholesomeness. Folks, I don't know about you, but I've certainly noticed even in my lifetime how much more of a vile and profane society we've become. Both the language and the visual images of our culture have become so debased. I mean, it's like nothing sacred anymore. But God's wisdom, He says, is pure. And so against the backdrop of the filthy smog of today, God's purity is almost like that pure cool breeze at the start of each day. And then he says not only is it pure, but it's peaceable. Man's wisdom leads to division and envy and fighting and self-seeking, but God's wisdom brings peace. When God's wisdom begins to prevail in a meeting, for example, it's almost like a whole different climate comes into the room. Suddenly there's love and joy and peace. People start talking to one another differently. There's respect. That's what God's wisdom brings. A third characteristic, the outworking, the operation of this wisdom from above, is it's gentle. Here's a word that refers to strength under control. The word picture here is of a horse that has been broken. You take a wild animal, a wild horse that nobody can get on him and and ride, but then you break him and, and all that strength is now under control. I don't know about you folks, but I wouldn't want to get on a wild horse, would you? Got on a hungry one one time. Big old Blackjack was his name. This man put me on him. And I went out away from the red barn. Way out into his field. And turned that horse around. And he saw that red barn that he associated with food. And what do you see? K and W. 
And man, that horse broke off in a wild gallop and nothing I could do would slow him down. I was, whoa, whoa, digging in my heels and pulling back and he was charging wide open. I mean, it's like we were at the Kentucky Derby or something and he ran right, it's like he was going to run through the wall of that red barn. And that little man who put me on that horse, he started laughing. He said, I forgot that I put you on him uh, while he's hungry. He says he does that when he sees that barn. But a horse that's tame, all that strength, is still just as strong as before. But now all that strength is channeled into something productive. That's what this word right here means, gentle. The harshness that is in man causes destruction. But when God gets a hold of that man, the strength that was once so prone to assert self-will, now is constructive and gentle. It's said of Abraham Lincoln that he was a man of velvet steel. That's gentleness. Then he goes on to give another outworking characteristic. Willing to yield or reasonable. This is the only time this phrase occurs in the New Testament. The word means that when man is walking in God's wisdom, he'll have a teachable spirit. He'll be open to instruction. And when he's wrong, he's man enough to admit it and change. In other words, he's somebody that you can reason with. He'll listen to your side. And if your side is God's side, he'll change. I've known of Christians before who would brag and say, You know what? I'm not going to budge an inch. Praise God if you're standing on some kind of point of doctrine. Don't budge. But if it's not, you need to be teachable and reasonable and willing to yield. Then he says, full of mercy and good fruits. The ability to feel for somebody and sympathize with them and forgive them and to do good and, and help them. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, we serve a God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our afflictions that we can turn right around and help somebody else who needs that same kind of help and mercy and comfort that we have experienced from God. And somebody walking in God's wisdom from above is able to see this. Be merciful to those around him who need some encouragement and help. Instead of just ignoring that person and going their own way. Another characteristic without partiality means you don't waver. You're single-minded. You don't take one position one day with one group of people and the opposite position the next day with a different group of people. You're not different depending on what crowd you're with. You're consistent. Finally, he says sincere and without hypocrisy. Sincere and without hypocrisy literally means you're not two-faced. Now early on in, in Greek literature and the Greek plays, a hypocrite was somebody that was extremely talented. A hypocrite was somebody that could get up on stage in ancient times in the theater and they could wear two different masks. They were a very talented person when it came to theater. But gradually over time, the word hypocrite took on negative connotations, meaning somebody who's two-faced, you can't trust them. But Paul says when we're walking in the wisdom from above, 
We're not like that. We're consistent. We're consistent. We're not full of hypocrisy. We're sincere. People can trust us. The outcome of this, verse 18, he says, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Worldly wisdom from below results, he says, in confusion and every evil and worthless thing. But God's wisdom results in peace and fruitfulness. And I want you to notice the repetition here of peace and fruitfulness. When we exercise God's wisdom, the peace and fruitfulness that is sown is also what we reap. It has a compounding effect. It's the old saying, you reap what you sow. And that's the outcome. Peace and righteousness and well-being or envy, division, jealousy, bitterness. James says that's our choices here. In the Rockefeller Center in New York City are four large paintings. The first is of a primitive man laboring with his hands, simply trying to survive. The second is of a man having become the creator of tools and the comforts of a more civilized life are beginning to be his. The third shows man to be both master and servant of the machine. The forces of the world are now under his direction. The fourth painting is a bit of a surprise. It's a painting of Jesus Christ as he's seen in the setting of the Sermon on the Mount. And underneath are the words, man's ultimate destiny depends not on whether he can learn new lessons or make new discoveries or conquest, but on his acceptance of the lesson that was taught him over 2,000 years ago. The wisdom from above or the wisdom from below. James says every day of your life, that's that's the fork in the road that you and I come to. We can go the direction of God's wisdom or man's wisdom. You got a choice. But he's saying you better choose wisely because the consequences of your choice may be devastating. The consequences of your choice you may have to live with for the rest of your life. Choose the wisdom from above. I may be talking to somebody this morning right now. You've been at that fork in the road many times and perhaps you've made the wrong decision. You've chosen the wisdom from below. And look at your life now. Your life may be in a mess now. Because of that. Maybe you need to come to the altar this morning in a public way and say, God, I'm tired of living my life this way. I'm tired of living my life being governed by man's wisdom. I want to take your word as a daily part of my life and I want my mind to be renewed on your word and I want to walk according to your wisdom. God, would you help me to do that? Maybe somebody else is involved in a situation right now that you desperately need God's wisdom over. You're struggling. Perhaps you want to come to the altar or come to me in a public way and say, Pastor, pray for me. There's a big decision in my life. This could go either way. There's a big decision. I desperately want God's wisdom.
Maybe you need God's wisdom in the ultimate sort of way. You need Jesus Christ on the throne of your heart. You want to become a Christian. And you'd like to talk to somebody about how to take that step. I'd love to talk to you about that. Would you stand please? Our hymn of invitation is going to be on the screens. The altar's open. If you want to bring somebody to pray with you, if you want to pray with me. If you're looking for a church home, we'd love to be your church home. Step out of the pew as soon as we begin to sing and come forward and say, Pastor, what's church membership mean? I'd like to be a member here in fellowship with other believers. I'd like to pray with you about that as well. Let's sing together.